what is going on ladies and gentlemen boys and girls children of all ages no i'm just kidding uh this is the complete center i am your host tyler fowler and with me actually he took a break the last time that we had a csg episode boo no i'm just kidding joshua sherman what is going on brother you did take a little break with us you were with us now for how long what was it like 15 16 consecutive episodes there and oh, that's that's yeah. a bit of an exaggeration but yeah no, i don't know it was it was at least 10 i think but anyway how you been bro it's been a while so yeah. doing pretty well new? yeah Good. just to, got to celebrate my daughter's birthday last weekend and that Congrats. was fun nah, so okay. how old is know, she she's eight nice so yeah it's uh crazy to see them growing and and the things that they learn how to do and you're just like i would have a hard time learning how to do that okay yeah. <laughs> right it's neat because kelsey she's a wait a minute she's 18 months and so i get what you're saying like just to see them grow and progress like so we had she's going through speech therapy now because she's a little bit behind talking and so Hmm. to see a list of what kids are supposed to be doing and then kind of comparing her to where they're supposed to be right it's just interesting to see how that works and what you know a three-year-old is supposed to be doing or two and a half year old supposed to be doing. It's just so neat to see God working in her and growing her like he does us, right? With spiritual growth, spiritual maturity to see her, you know, becoming more mature. It's just so cool. But with Absolutely. me, I, I love it, man. I love it. But Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, how are you doing, my friend? Second Great. time on CSG. And so thank you for joining us. What is yeah. in your life? How have you been since the last time we spoke? That wasn't it wasn't that long ago, was it? All's no. well here. Plug it along. <laughs> the temperature dipped below 80 the other day down here in Austin. So that was fantastic. Got dip, to- below, <laughs> dip below 80, man. It's been like 30 here in Indiana. It, it got down to low 30s overnight. And I'm just I'm jealous of your 80 degree weather. <laughs> just beautiful. That's awesome. So we are back to talk. Oh, actually, real quick. So the video that we did. Um, it's actually our number one. It's our most popular video on the right channel, on. setting right at 400 views. So thank you all to everyone who shared like that. We really, really appreciate that. Um, so we, you're back, and we're here this time to to discuss law and gospel distinction. And so I was watching a video that you did on uh, Luther, and and I was just I was blown away by it. But I noticed as a Calvinist, there are some distinctions in this law and gospel um, conundrum that we see. And it's already sparked kind of a discussion on my Facebook page about law and gospel and Karl Barth. I don't know if you guys have seen it or anything like that. I can go to it later if we need to. But but it's Mm -hmm. interesting to see how how Barth was wanting to put the law back in the gospel and that he just was completely against the Lutheran view. And so, uh, Pastor Wolf Mueller, if you would, kind of break down what is going on with the law and the gospel from the sure. Lutheran perspective, and then we'll get into a more detailed discussion of that as we go. Sure. The, it's, here's the basic idea, and it's so helpful, and, and that is that um, that God speaks to us basically in two ways. He gives us commands, mm-hmm. which we keep by doing, and he gives us promises, which we keep by believing. And so all of scriptures are divided up into commands and promises. And that sometimes God gives a command with a promise, like honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you, and you'll live long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. But that's a command with a promise or with a benefit there. But the gospel is that specific promise of the forgiveness of sins that's won for us by the death of Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the early Lutherans, Luther himself says that this distinction between God's commands and God's promises or God's uh, law and his instruction and his gospel, the good news of the, uh, the forgiveness of sins by, by Christ, have to be distinguished from one another. Mm-hmm. That the law, while important, especially in telling us what love looks like, both for God and for the neighbor, mm-hmm. the law always wants to insert itself into the salvation part of God's word, which is the exclusive realm of the gospel, these promises. And so that's why that distinction is so important, so that we can we can let each word do its proper thing. The law can instruct us and convict us and instruct the Christian. Mm-hmm. So it can instruct the world, it's, it instruct the Christian, and also show us our own sin. But the gospel has that unique work of bringing the forgiveness of sins from, from the Lord by the Holy Spirit to us. Okay, so there is a use then. I mean, the law is just not, and we'll get into this more in detail, but just on the surface, the law is not done away with. There is actually uses that the law 
has pertaining to Christians today, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think you'd mentioned before this Luther's great commentary on Genesis and or, sorry, on Galatians, his greater Galatians commentary. And he says, look, when we stand before one another, the law has its say. When we stand before God, the gospel has its say. Mm. And so the, um, those, the, the law has a continuing role and responsibility in our lives, even past this life into the resurrection. The law is still there. The law is called by the Lutheran confessors, the eternal will of God, mm. which the Calvinists should like. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, <laughs> The so that it all has a role all the way through, but the gospel, especially this promise of forgiveness, that that's where justification comes in. That's where salvation comes in, and from that work, from the gospel, all works are excluded. So the law is excluded. So uh, the law brings the knowledge of sin, says Saint Paul. It's the gospel that brings the righteousness of God for all those who believe. Right, Romans three twenty three. I, I want to get into that verse. Uh, Joshua Sherman, you said uh, in our notes, like kind of yeah. to start this off, that your biggest concern is that it seems both law and gospel are approached in general as general categories, and both are frankly devoid of first century context. Can you kind of go into what you meant by that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, essentially, it sounds like what this is 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 taking. You know concepts you know so law is this category that fits all these things and gospel is this category that fits all these things and what what i'm generally seeing and and this is one of those things that gets really fun when you start mixing uh you know reformation theology and modern scholarship and all of these things like there are a lot of different debates that go on um and and so i i guess in seeing a lot of what i'm seeing in, in modern scholarship where people are paying attention to a lot of second temple literature and they're really trying to put law in its context and gospel in its context this distinction feels like to me it's trying to transcend all of that and i wonder if we lose the context we need by trying to get that transcendence does that make sense sure there's um a, a lot of um you know a big part of this debate is what's called the new perspective on paul mm -hmm. right? and so this comes about i mean the interesting thing is uh when you read luther's greater galatians uh discussing the law and you see that he contrasts his understanding of the law with Jerome's understanding of the law. And how did Jerome understand the law? It was the ceremonial law that kept Israel distinct from the heathens. In mm -hmm. other words, it was St. Jerome who had the new perspective on Paul. <laughs> so th this idea that the law, so the new perspective on Paul says that the law must be understood in the covenant context. So correct me because I'm no expert on this, but in the covenant <laughs> context of the Old Testament. And so when Paul says, for example, we're saved by the law, we're, we're saved by not by the law or by the works of the law, he's especially referring to those works like circumcision or the kosher laws or the, those, uh, the kind of the holiness code that kept the Old Testament people distinct mm -hmm. from the people around them. And not the the kind of abstract understanding of law as obedience to the Ten Commandments. Yeah, yeah, and it's one of the things that makes it interesting. Of course, as with anything, when you get a bunch of scholars in the room, is there is no single new perspective. Mm -hmm, <laughs> so it gets right. a little bit hard to kind of say, okay, which one are we talking about, and on all the different details, and then you can go back and forth. And you know, uh, Dunn really, you know, came out and and really was pushing that whole works of the law as as that those covenant distinctives um very kind of forcefully at first and then and then he nuanced that a little bit when he got pushed back with specific passages where you know it seems pretty clear that some of those really are kind of relating to works in general and so how do you kind of nuance that and have it make sense and so th there's been a lot of back and forth there but those are the kinds of questions i have because it seems like you know when we talk about law you know, one of the questions that, that we can run into or maybe problems we can run into is immediately just thinking everything we think of when we think law. And are we pulling that from the context of Nomo? Are we pulling that from the context of Torah? Are we separating it from those contexts? And if we do that, are we are we creating blind spots for ourselves by doing that? And then I have kind of similar questions about gospel. So sure. when I see all those things kind of out here in, in, in space, I am not th that familiar with the law and the gospel distinction from a Lutheran perspective. So I'm, I'm just kind of looking to understand yeah. this perspective and then kind of throw things together and see what happens because, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate how knowledgeable uh, and personable you are from, from the last episode that, that Tyler did. And uh, just looking forward to discussing that more and trying to understand it. Sure. Well, so the law and gospel and works and all of these things have to be of course understood. And in fact, they'll have, Sort of broad ranges of meaning so we can see for example in that romans 3 passage that we mentioned earlier mm -hmm. it says 
that the law, mm. I, I, it uses the word law in two different ways in the same verse. It says, um, now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. <laughs> so so there you have the, the righteousness apart from the law. That's the law versus gospel distinction. But then you have the law there, which simply means the Old Testament, basically the Torah, the five books of Moses. That also mm. means law. And the same thing tr is true with gospel. You know, the gospel can be that specific promise of the forgiveness of sins, or it can be the books of the basic story and outline of Jesus, so, or it could be even broader to mean the whole Christian preaching as distinct from the pagan preaching. And law can have all those different kind of nuances as well, which is, which is great. I mean, which uh, I was just looking at Romans 2, where, for this, it says, for when the Gentiles, and I think this is probably the key for thinking about the new perspective on Paul. Mm. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves. Now, no Gentile would ever come across by nature something like circumcision. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. right? That is yeah. not part of the natural law. That is part of the revealed law that the Lord gives. So when Paul's talking about doing the law without the law, he's talking about something that is, in fact, a universal moral mm. uh, requirements of good works. And so we have to have at least the, the word and language of law has to in some ways include that. Paul circles back to it at the end of Romans, and he talks about mm. uh, the law, which commands us to love our neighbor and so forth. Yeah. So Christians in every tradition have always conf uh, confessed that there is a a moral law or that is universal it's bound to the conscience and to nature and um if you're trying to squeeze the language of law mm -hmm. if you're trying to squeeze that idea out of the language of law when paul uses it altogether then there's probably something suspicious going on and that's right. what luther saw with jerome he says when you say that when we're not saved by works of the law that only means circumcision and temple rituals and things yeah. like that you are trying to squeeze, you are trying to make a way for our good works to have a role in salvation. Right. One other thing on that, which I think is really interesting. So I got, yeah. I looked into this, and this is years ago, but um, one of the very early guys in the new perspective was a guy named Christer Stendhal, who wrote a very significant essay called Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West in mm. the Harvard Theological Review or something. And uh, and um, he makes the argument, He what he tries to do is to go into the context of the Reformation. So, so hmm. um, just like the kind of the other guys are looking at, trying to look at the context of first century Judaism and things like this. Mm -hmm. Stendhal is looking at the Reformation and he says, the problem in the Reformation was that people were trying to find out how to be at peace with God. They said, hmm. The big problem is a as I have this introspective conscience. I'm looking at myself and how do I stand before the Lord? And that was Luther's problem, but it wasn't Paul's problem. And mm. so Paul, so Luther put his problem onto Paul. Now the so so I was just testing. Yeah. I was testing that thesis, and by doing that, I was trying to look. I was looking at the passages. So to, at, in Luther, where he talks about being troubled with our sin, mm. and two things emerged really quite amazingly. Number one, whenever Luther talks about having a troubled conscience, he uses the Psalms. Mm. He uses mm. King David, not St. Paul. Mm -hmm. So out of depths I cry unto thee, if thou, O Lord, should keep a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? When I kept silence, my bones waxed old for the groaning. Have mercy on me, O Lord. All the penitential yeah. Psalms. Mm-hmm. So he looked, he saw that in the Psalms, not in Paul, which is very important, very, so that it's, it's not just part of our Christian consciousness of sin. It's part of our whole Bible consciousness of sin. It was their Old Testament and New Testament. But here's the other thing. And this, when you go and read the 95 Theses, this sort of shows up pretty distinctly and wonderfully, is that Luther, Luther was not dealing with a bunch of people who were terrified of God. In fact, he thought the problem was exactly the opposite, is that there wasn't fear of God. After all, if you thought that you could appease the wrath of God by buying an indulgence, you did not have the proper fear of God. The people mm. weren't terrified for the right. judgment because they had all these little trinkety kind of things that they could do to avoid it. 
And so, so if you look at Luther, the way he talks, for example, about the monks or the way he talks about the um, priests or the Catholic theologians, their problem is not that they're terrified of God. Their problem is that they're not terrified of God. Right. So mm -hmm. to take this idea of like a baseline of terror and to, and to impose it on the Middle Ages is, uh, is a bad read of history. Right. No, I was going back and reading Exodus and to just piggybacking on that fear of God. That's what instills within us to run to God. In some sense, there has to be a fear of judgment, right? But at the same time, we're not just afraid of God. We awe at God, right? We are in complete awe of him. And it's, mm. so there's a balance there of becoming, you know, there is that sense of terror and the sense of, you know, just watching even some evangelicals on TV and just some of the things they say to one another and say about, you know, well, if you just, if you, if you sow your seed of a dollar and we know we're talking, I'm talking about the word of faith guys and stuff like that. Right. But at the same time, I ask myself, how can they have an honest fear of God within them? And this is something that's on the inside. I think this is something that really hits the heart. The Holy Spirit convicts us in our heart that we've broken God's law, that we've done all these things. And I think, you know, bringing this kind of back to the to the topic of conversation, the law and the gospel, right? This is what Paul's talking about whenever he's talking about the contrition that Romans 3 brings, right? That, that whenever we look at the law, we see this fear of God and we have to ask ourselves, and I think you mentioned it on your video, um, something about uh, the natural man, he is afraid of, you know, he, he's basically stuck in his, well, what can I do about my sin? But the Christian, mm. the supernatural man, he's the one that says, what's God gonna do about my sin? Right. What is God? And this is the position that you have to be in first and foremost before you ever see your need for Jesus as Savior. Yeah, that's well said. I've made this distinction. I don't think this can be held up as a, a formal distinction or a technical distinction, but it, I think it's a helpful pastoral and theological one. And that is the dis difference between um, uh, being troubled by our sin and being terrified, having a troubled conscience and a terrified conscience. So a troubled yeah. conscience says, I've made mistakes, sure enough. But it's still, the, the, the focus is on me and my breaking of God's law or my not meeting my own standards or whatever. Mm -hmm. A terrified conscience knows that because of what I've done wrong, I've deserved God's wrath and his eternal punishment. And so I recognize that the problem is not just me. The problem is with God. And, and of course, the, the pr reason I have a problem with God is not because God is a problem, but because I'm a sinner. Right, mm -hmm. right. So, would you say that 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 Luther had the kind of frightened or the terrified conscience when he was dealing with his own uh, own things? Because it seems like you know that's a point. I, I think wasn't he essentially getting up to do his first mass and and just realized like I can't do this because of his own fear. That's it. It's interesting that um, because Luther is like persona non grata number one for uh, for the Roman Catholic Church, and so <laughs> and so I and they've been trolling me quite a bit, which is getting me worked up. But it's very interesting <laughs> to say they'll they'll point this out. I, I appreciate it because they are looking for the worst in in Luther, so mm. it helps me. Um, they they'll say on the one hand that Luther uh, had the sin of scrupulosity, or that mm. just the posture he was too concerned about the minor little things so he'd go to confession and then while he was cleaning the floor he'd have a lustful thought and so he'd run back to confession and mm -hmm. his confessor would have to say go commit a real sin yeah. uh, but then they'll say mm -hmm. luther was he was a drunkard and uh, a lustful uh vile kind of creature uh who didn't care about sin and just wanted to do whatever <laughs> he wanted it's like, well, you guys should make up your mind, you know. Which yeah, that does get a little interesting. Yeah. Engine, but I suppose all of us have, um, you know, sometimes our consciences are, and even it depends on the day and the circumstances and even the kind of sin, you know, sometimes our consciences are particularly troubled by a certain kind of sin, but we don't even notice another kind of sin. Um, and so right. we could be, we could be very sensitive to sins of the of the tongue for example we always want to tell the truth we never want to lie and yet we're we we fail to see our pride or vanity or whatever so and I, and so luther struggled in the flesh just just like all of us so that, that's always a, the lutheran perspective on luther himself is that he was a sinner he was not immaculately conceived nor do we consider him a saint or in any way a pope 
This is one of the accusations that the Lutherans always get. I, I, I don't know. I get this a couple times a day now. It's great. They say, hey, we Catholics follow Jesus. You Lutherans follow a man. Uh, Which I say, mm. hey, now wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Yeah. You guys actually have a guy called the Pope that you follow. That's like your official deal. Yeah. And if a Lutheran is following, um, uh, if a Lutheran is following Luther, they're, they are in disobedience to Luther who said, don't follow me. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep, and I just want to give a shout out to anybody that's ever made a claim to me and about following John Calvin. No, I follow Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to throw that oh. in there. But, but before we, so I want to get into, um, as a Lutheran, sure, the tripartite view of the law. But first, before I do that, we have a comment that I, I kind of brought it up in the beginning, but I do want to hear your thoughts about it, um, Pastor Wolf Mueller. And it's this one from our buddies over at Spartan Theology. Ethan is his name. And he says, what does Brian think of Barth's view that the law and gospel are different, but any real separation of them is not the law of God? Do you think that should have meant any separation is not the word of God? Or is it stated rather? I'm not familiar enough with Barth to know 100%. I I think I would say that... um, all theology is about making distinctions without making separations. Mm-hmm. So we distinguish the law and the gospel. We don't separate them. Just like we distinguish the two natures of Christ, we don't separate them. We distinguish the persons in the Holy Trinity, but we don't separate them. So the law and the gospel ought to be distinguished but never separated. They each have their own roles and vocations. Um, the But Bart, so the Lutherans have been, the, the, the great um, theological counterpoint to Bart was Hermann Sasse, who was a contemporary in G- Germany, and he was a great Lutheran theologian. Mm-hmm. And um, and he so Sasse would be the guy to look at to see sort of the Lutheran response to um, to Karl Bart. But it's here's an, and this might be interesting is that Bart was never taken that seriously amongst the mm. Lutherans. Um, he was never considered that. I, I, and I don't know exactly why, but this there is a sort of neo-Lutheranism, but but neo-Orthodoxy, it made some headway in the Lutheran Church, but not a lot. And so I'll confess my ignorance. I, I think that's all I have to say. And fair enough. I mean, I would have to go back and pull up the quote he was talking about, but I think that that was right, the law of God um, in that last part. But Ethan, if you want to clear that up in the comments, <clears throat> excuse me, comments, feel free, brother. Uh, we'll, uh, I'll, I'll get that question back up there, but I do want to move on, uh, Josh, unless Josh, uh, do you have anything else you want to say on that before we move on to the tripartite view of the law? Yeah. Moral, uh, ceremonial. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the reason I was asking, asking the question earlier is, is that question of, of the fear of God and how that plays into Luther's theology. And so if we're looking at, you know, was Luther pointing towards the people and saying, you know, that you have too much fear of God, probably not. Right. Um, was he reacting to his own fear of God? It seems like that was something that was going on. And I don't know how that plays in exactly, because I, I, I have only you know studied <laughs> a little bit on, on Luther. But it, it just makes me wonder, because it's, it seems like that was definitely part of, of what was really driving him and, and what led him to feel so relieved when he found this sense of being justified by faith without works and was like, this is it right? This is the gospel. And, and, you know, I mean, once he found that it, there was no turning back for him. Right. I mean, it was, it was, that's it, you know, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. The, his, his story of the discovery of the gospel is really p- quite profound. It, it has everything to do with Romans 1, 16 and 17, which he was trying to study. And, and he makes this point that the righteousness of God, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God from, uh, for the Jew and also for the Greek. And he said, I was taught to that righteousness of God, meant mm, that what i mean basically the law what you do in obedience mm. and and the idea that he was trained in the monastery was that the law was the 10 commandments which was the basic outward keeping of morality that came from moses the gospel was the extra commandments that you take on yourself as a monk so mm. poverty chastity obedience the 10 commandments mm. what, what was the evangelical councils so the gospel demands it's like law 10 commandments here and then evangelical councils you know here mm. so that word the righteousness of god was even was a a, a more oppressive even law and he, he'll confess that i hated that word the righteousness of god and i hated the god that demanded that kind of righteousness <laughs> but then luther says i paid attention to the text and it says that that righteousness of the gospel is by faith 
Mm-hmm. And so this is a this is an interesting thing. That, that, again, faith is what believes a promise, whereas uh, obedience is what keeps a commandment. So if the gospel, if the righteousness of the gospel is believed, then it's a promised righteousness, not a demanded righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's a gift, not a um, an uh, obligation. And so now that that's what sets Luther free to kind of dig through the scriptures, looking at this difference between what's commanded and what's given as a gift. So it's kind of like he saw Romans 4. I was just reading it right before this, but Romans 4, whenever Paul is talking about if it's works, it cannot be by be by grace. So that was kind of that light bulb moment for Luther in that specific verse in that passage. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That is so it's, cool. It's it is. I I think this to contrast this too. So Luther doesn't say I was visited by an angel or I had a vision right. or whatever. <laughs> right. He says I paid attention to the words. Mm. So I so I'm always very mm. careful on any sort of uh, any story of the Reformation to make sure that it Luther's personal history doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. In other words, it wasn't because of his scrupulosity or lack thereof. Mm. Uh, but rather it's, it, it, it's the Lord Jesus giving his gifts. So Mm. uh, it's, it is the word. Amen. And I love how you said it in our, in our past episode, faith is the, faith is the thing that grabs hold of those promises. In our last video where we were talking about the sacraments, how they, not to get it, you know, confused with, or, or not, how did you put it? Not to break into Gnosticism and make it only an inside thing, but to see mm. these sacraments come from with, from outside mm-hmm. in, and that that's when our faith, you know, it grabs a hold of those promises mm-hmm. through the sacraments. And I, I just love that. That was really good. That. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, all right. So I want to turn to, or kind of shift focus then to the tripartite view of the law, the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial aspect to it, because I've recently came across new covenant theology and they now are see the law as more of a unit as more of a package deal and i just wanted to get your thoughts uh on that pastor wolf mueller do do lutherans break up the law into three distinct you know the tripartite Mm. or do you guys see more of it as being a covenantal package so to say so this is a good question the, the, so traditionally, the Lutherans speak of when they talk about the uses of the law, they're, they're talking about the curb, mirror, and guide. So they're talking about the civil use, the theological use, which is to show our sin, and then the instructive use for the Christian life. There is, with most Lutherans, that tripartite view of the Old Testament law, the Old, the yeah. covenant, old, old Covenant, is pretty common. I've heard it a lot. I've taught it. I've used it, that um, you, you have the the um, kind of clarification of the moral law that would be the mostly of the 10 commandments. And then you have the ceremonial law, which it would have to do with the temple and everything around the temple and divine service. And then you have the civil law, Israel as a state. Um, you get hints of that here and there in some of the Lutheran writings. Although I've, I've run across very recently, a few Lutherans who would reject that idea. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. So I, so I'm curious about the whole, uh, alternative. So I would say that that tripartite understanding is common amongst the Lutherans, but not, I, I can't find, say that it's any sort of official doctrine. Okay. It, it no. seems like it's pretty yeah. common among Protestants in general, from what mm-hmm. I've seen. Yeah. Um, but I would love to kind of get more into the details of that because I, I haven't really you know, studied the history of that and kind of where that those ideas came from. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't either, but there's a way where, um, so we would understand the there's a threefold use of the law mm-hmm. uh, that the, the Lord, it ha- probably has to do with the covenant that the Lord makes to Abraham because there's a threefold promise. The Lord promises to Abraham, the people, the place, and the Messiah. Okay. And the law is now preserving the people, the place, and it, for the sake of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So the, there's some of the law that preaches, for example, I mean, the Day of Atonement, the Passover, the priesthood. This is all, the, in fact, the whole tabernacle is preaching the conversation of heaven, making it known on earth, right. um, which is, you know, God be praised for that. And the civil law is, is because you have a theocracy there. The Lord is king, and so he's maintaining the, the law. Um, and then you do, have, like we mentioned in Romans 2, you do have that universal law that belongs also to the Gentiles who don't have the books of Moses. So I think it holds together pretty well, but it 
I like the just from the notes that you guys even sent. I like the idea of recognizing this is this is all of a piece. Mm -hmm. So we don't want to throw it out so quickly. I mean, when we see, I guess we should be careful when we see, for example, circumcision, mm -hmm. and we see the debate about circumcision in the New Testament, which says you don't need to do it. In fact, if you're if it's demanded of you, you can't do it. Mm -hmm. Or even the Sabbath day. I ran, I've, I always, and I suppose all of us are always running into a bunch of Sabbatarians mm -hmm. who say that, that look, the law that the Lord gave, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. You can't, you can't change that sort of thing. Well, yes. if you can change the circumcision law, you can change the, the Sabbath law. And the church did change this. I mean, very quickly, blam, I mean, it happened. The resurrection of Jesus reset the calendar. Right. And we start to realize then that, that these, uh, old parts, uh, huge chunks of the Old Testament law are preaching Jesus, and if we keep practicing them, then we un we break the law. In other words, if I demand circumcision as a Christian, mm -hmm. I'm actually breaking the law of circumcision because that law was preaching the coming seed, which yeah. now has come. That sure seems to be the way Paul puts it. Right. And that seems to be, I mean, no, you're absolutely right. I'm trying to find where they talk about the <laughs> tripartite law um, I'm in here. But but that's kind of what I was phrasing, what I was trying to get at to bring this question up. And I've ran into a person, he was supposed to join us um, to, to ask a couple questions. But um, we've been talking, and from my understanding, I wish he was here, he could phrase it a lot better than I can. But from my understanding, his idea is that once someone is born again, once someone is saved, they will want to keep the Mosaic law, the law of Moses that was given to Israel on Mount Sinai. And then, you know, um, did over again at in Deuteronomy, the, the two there. But the point is, is that he sees the law as a as a whole. He sees all 613 commandments there. And so while I look for this, if he, if you would kind of just uh, just talk on that, if if you guys would go back and forth. Basically, I don't understand because, like you said, there, there's this there's this idea that Jesus has kept the Passover, not not kept, but Jesus has fulfilled the Passover. Jesus has fulfilled these types and shadows that we see all throughout, not only the law, but the prophets and, and the Psalms and, you know, wisdom literature as well. And so over all of the the Toda of the Old Testament, from the law to the prophets to the writings, we see Jesus typified in types and mm -hmm. shadows and to see for me anyway, it helps to pack that all together to see Jesus fulfill it all. Does that make sense? But then mm -hmm. to come back and say, but if you're saved, you'll want to keep the law of Moses. It kind of sounds off to me. And I don't know that that's the only way I know how to put it. It kind of sounds like you're wanting to bring back in the law at that point. Yeah. 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 A hundred percent. I mean, so just so just to think of a couple of Bible passages that would address this. I'm I, the first couple that occur to me are Philippians three, mm -hmm. where Paul talks about, look, I have so much to be confident about in the flesh, circumcised on the eighth day, the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, right. Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord, whom I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish. Mm -hmm. So so part of the Christian mind, according to St. Paul, is that circumcision is rubbish. <laughs> mm -hmm. That the, the Sabbath is rubbish. Which that, is... I mean, that, that's, that's what Paul says. I mean, and that's hard words. I, I The other text is where Paul or whoever's working on Hebrews, but I, I mean, so Hebrews 8, where it's talking about Jeremiah 23, and it's talking about the new covenant, the old covenant. It says, those things which are, um, mm, mm, let me see here, how he concludes this. Uh, so Hebrews 8, 13, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Or consider how Paul in Galatians had to rebuke Peter. Mm -hmm. Remember, Peter was in Damascus, and was it Damascus? And he was, oh, not Damascus. He was eating with the Gentiles, and then the... Antioch. What Antioch. Yeah, uh, yeah, one of those, Antioch. Yeah. He was eating with the Gentiles. The, uh, the delegation came from Jerusalem, and he went back to keeping kosher law, and 
Paul had to publicly rebuke Peter because his keeping kosher was a denial of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not to say, look, if, that you have to go and eat unclean f- food that's unclean according to the Old Testament. But if you are requiring that or even desiring that, then then Paul would say you had you should be publicly rebuked. Yeah. Josh, what are I, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think we get a pretty good picture of it, not just from Paul, but even from James when we look at the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. You know, he doesn't say, it is my judgment, therefore, that Gentiles should be circumcised and then try to keep the law. He actually essentially says Gentiles should keep the law they were required to live as foreigners living among Israel, which were these four things. If you look at Leviticus, and it was, you know, don't eat blood, don't eat an animal that's been strangled, uh, refrain from sexual immorality, and refrain from idolatry. Uh, and so you look at that, and you look at Leviticus, and you go like, oh, like he's posing them as the foreigner living among Israel, essentially as Gentiles joining the church, and he's not requiring them to keep Torah as Jews, right? So I feel like he's pretty clear there about the categories going there, and he, and he doesn't include circumcision. And if he doesn't include circumcision, I don't know how you're supposed to keep Torah without that. So that's one thing. I think the other thing I would say is if you're if you're looking for a really good book on this, um, reading Moses, seeing Jesus, um, is uh, it's actually by uh, <clears throat> three different uh, Messianic Jews that live in Israel and keep Torah themselves because mm-hmm. they're living culturally among people um, that that keep Torah and they are you know culturally Jews themselves. Right. Um, and um, my phone's ringing, so <laughs> I'll have to get the letter. Um, and um, what what they do is they basically point out that the Torah itself is not just commands, but it's the first five books of the of, of the Bible that we have that tells us the story of humanity and sets up the need and the expectation for Messiah. And so, and and one of the things that he says that I think is really really brilliant is is just looking at it and saying like, if you are trying to tell a story that said we can keep the law. And that is what we're supposed to do as human beings, and we will do it, and we don't need a Messiah. You don't start with the first story basically being two human beings with one command that fail. <laughs> and then you keep going on failing. Like, it, it's designed to basically say we, we aren't able to do this. Mm-hmm. And this expectation is therefore set up for the Messiah. And so it's the Christ being the, the, the end of the law in terms of telos, the purpose, what it's pointing to. Uh, is is Christ, right? Mm-hmm. And then as right. we, if we see that, then we can start to understand, you know, the difference between the law as the commandments of God specifically, and and the law as Torah, as the teaching and the story of 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 who Israel and and who humanity is that we fit into. And in I faith. absolutely, and I think that goes right into what you and I were discussing on ancient Near Eastern, right? Like ideology is with Suzerian vassal. Uh, mm-hmm. treaties and how and so whenever you said that jesus was the tell us of those things reading kind of what this book says about the rejection of the tripartite law it is that they view the covenant as that whole as and what jesus is to fulfill does that make sense mm-hmm. and so that's like what you were saying how you know and even paul in galatians how the law was a schoolmaster until Christ came. It's kind of like I heard it um, referenced as hanging flyers for a concert. Well, you don't put the flyers up after the concert's already happened, do you? No, of course not. This is what we're showing. The law, and, and, and not only the law, but the prophets and the writings, like I said, they all pointed to Christ. And so Christ, being the telos of those things, has brought those things to their designated endpoint. And now mm-hmm. we have him. Does that mean we're antinomians and we say that there's no law? Of course not. What does Paul say in Romans? We establish the law. What law? The law of Christ. Love mm-hmm. for one another. Belief in him and love. These are the two commandments that John gave us in First John. And, th- and this is it. He goes, you have the command to believe in the one whom he has sent and to love your neighbor as yourself. Do these things and you have fulfilled the law, period and subject. And I, and I just love that. So anyway, what's your, um, so back on that. Romans yeah, four said Christ yeah. is the end of the law for all who believe. But I, I would say, so here's the picture that I like to use. So mm-hmm. especially when we talk about how the old Testament is a book of Christ, because mm-hmm. I think one of the biggest mistakes um, that's very common in the church today is this idea that, uh, the doctrines, the Christian doctrines are concealed in the Old Testament and revealed in the New Testament. I'm just mm. against it. It, just, it. it can't be that the Lord was so 
private about things. I mean, I think that from the moment that the Lord came to visit Adam and Eve, Jesus is there with Adam and Eve in the garden, mm -hmm. giving the promise that the seed will crush the head of the devil, that Adam and Eve could confess the Apostles' Creed. I mean, and so that the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, the God, doctrine of the substitutionary atonement, it's all from beginning to end in the Old Testament. I'd use to confirm this, Acts 10, where Paul says that all the prophets preached the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. All the prophets preached that. So hmm. from the beginning, of the, the Old Testament is about Jesus and specifically his work and the forgiveness that comes from his work. So that when we talk about the Old Testament, we're talking about Jesus in three ways. Number one, that Jesus is promised there. So Genesis 3.15, Genesis 12, and all the promises to Abraham, the seed mm -hmm. promises to Isaac mm -hmm. and Jacob, and then to Judah, that the scepter won't depart. All those messianic prophecies all through the prophets, minor and major, uh, all the Psalms and so forth. Jesus is promised. Right. Number two, Jesus is pictured and preached by the Passover, by the priesthood, by the circumcision, by the um, uh, even perhaps by the kosher laws, all Jesus by the blood of the of the lambs that are shed every day in the matins and vespers in the temple and all that sort of stuff. Jesus is being preached by by the suffering by the imprisonment of Jeremiah. Jesus is being preached by the by the flood of Noah. Jesus is being preached. Mm -hmm. But then the third thing, and this is maybe the most important, is that Jesus is there. I mean, who is it that's speaking to to Joshua out of the uh, as the angel of the Lord, who is it that's in right, the burning yeah. bush and in the and in the rock and in the the pillar of cloud and who's who's walking in the cool of the day to talk to uh, Adam and Eve and who's visiting Abraham and speaking to him? It's Jesus. I think when it says the word of the Lord came to Amos, <laughs> I don't I don't yeah. know how we think of it. Like like Amos is sitting there thinking and he gets a like no it, the word of Jesus is the word right right <laughs> yeah. so that when I think we should just think when the word of the Lord comes to, to Amos we should just think of Jesus walking up to him and talking to him and that's just, sure that's sure the way that so many of the church fathers read it and we have yeah. that from Jeremiah right who says that the false prophets are those who have not stood in the council of the Lord that mm -hmm. that gathering that that heavenly throne room where the Lord gathers with his angels and his people that the, the prophets are the ones who enter into that throne room and then make known what's revealed to them there. So they have a heavenly conversation. So the Mount of Transfiguration is, as St. Peter says, the prophetic word confirmed mm. because that's what the prophets were doing. They were visiting with, <laughs> with the Father and the Son and the Spirit and the angels mm -hmm. uh, in, in the glory of God. So there's an interesting connection there, I think, that we see a lot, and you mentioned the fact this is problematic in the church today. I've definitely seen this, where people want to essentially squeeze God into, and, and all of the essentially Christian theology, into what we can see in Jesus's life and earthly ministry. And it's like almost this like procrustrian bed of like, we're going to chop off the Old Testament because we don't see the word in the Old Testament. We're going to chop off Revelation because that's just awkward. And we're only going to look at at Jesus being the one who is bringing this good news. And and I have issues with that. I think for a lot of the same reasons that you that you that you're saying is that you know we we can't just look at, at Jesus if we're truly saying that he is you know the Son incarnate, the Word incarnate, and now you know ascended to the throne, fully human, fully divine, and somehow separate this out, or we can say you know. All I see is Jesus being loving and Jesus, you know, being nice to people and Jesus proclaiming good news. And therefore, the gospel doesn't have any sense of of like, oh, like, I mean, Paul comes out and says it. He says that according to his gospel, Jesus is going to judge what people do in secret. Like if judgment is part of his gospel, that that complicates a little bit, I think, maybe the law and gospel distinction. But it also makes it hard to separate the Old and the New Testament the way that a lot of people do. Does that make sense? Oh yeah. So you so you start with an app. This is a dangerous path, but a lot of people are on it. And mm -hmm. and the idea is you just think before you start reading the Bible. You know Jesus is a nice guy, but yeah. the prophets and the apostles they were a little too. They kind of went overboard. So just cut off the apostles <laughs> and cut off the prophets. That's that, that's rough, you know. And we are, you know, we're sensitive these days, and so we just gotta get Jesus who was nice. And then, but then the problem is you start reading Jesus and you're like, wait a minute. He's not very nice. <laughs> so then yeah. you have to start doing the Jesus seminar sort of thing, you know, yeah. where you're like, wow, that sounds too rough and that sounds too whatever. And that sounds too, I don't know, 
second century and I, I don't like this part and you end up getting Jesus you get a picture of you know so you're cutting off parts of the gospel that you don't like yeah. until finally you get a Jesus who looks an awful lot like a you know a 20th like century you. Bible scholar right yeah, right no. I mean yeah, yeah. Uh, if you are if we're reading the Bible only to get the parts that we agree with then we are that's idolatry is what that is and that's mm. the whole progressive wing of the church is idolatry I'm gonna make the Bible tell me what I want it to tell me and the only way I let it speak to sin is if it's systemic sin not individual personal sin right mm. oh so I like the prophets telling people not to be capitalists or whatever but I but boy when it gets to this whole sexual immorality thing that's just old school and it's and, and you get even stuff I I've people say well look why do why are we so upset about like the definition of marriage why two dudes can be married they love each other after all jesus never talked about it only paul and moses and all the prophets and all the apostles but jesus never yeah. said anything so therefore we can sort of escape but jesus did yes talk about it exactly he joked about it he talked about herod's palace and he says you want to find the effeminate fellas you go to herod's palace so Jesus tells a joke about it, and and that is very mm. offensive to our modern sensibilities. But that's the whole point of having a holy book. If right. it doesn't offend us at some point, then it's probably not from God. Because how would you would you expect a book written by a God to be to totally a hundred percent agree with what we thought already? That would be a little bit suspicious. Mm -hmm. it, it would leave us essentially basically saying we can stay the way we are. Yeah. Right. And that is clearly not what we see in Scripture when when right. it talks about sanctification. When we talk about uh, you know being transformed from glory to glory as we behold Christ, like that's not staying the same way. <laughs> and, and there's a and this is very important because because we because we have mistaken true love for tolerance mm -hmm. or even acceptance and. That's dangerous. And we so we can test it out. If you go home tonight, I don't know if you guys are married. If you guys are married, you should go home tonight and tell your wife, I tolerate you. And see how it goes. <laughs> no. It is in fact, it is in fact not love. That's very different. So mm. so Jesus does not tolerate us. He loves us, mm -hmm. which means no matter what our sin is, all of us have it. And it's mm -hmm. deep and it's ugly. And it's corrosive and it does damage to us and to everyone around us. Mm -hmm. And it looks different for each person, but it's bad. And Jesus says, that sin, I will suffer. Mm. I will take it on myself. I will, feel the I will feel the temptation of it. He was tempted in every way like we are. And I will feel the sorrow that it causes the heart of God. Mm -hmm. And I will mm -hmm. take the wrath that it deserves. Mm -hmm. And I will take all of that so that I can have you with me forever. And if we, if, if the, if we cannot let the scriptures call us sinners, then the whole act of salvation becomes nothing at all. That's right. And mm -hmm. we just have a Jesus who's kind of like Mr. Rogers, which I suppose would be nice, but the problem is it's not the Jesus that okay. Jesus wants to be for you and for me. And well, for all and, of us. And Mr. Rogers isn't going to conquer death. Right. <laughs> That's right. right. You know, like, no, yeah. no, you're absolutely right. And this kind of goes back into, you know, we were talking about the law. We've got 30, well, 20 minutes left, mm -hmm. really. And now to transition in the gospel, like what you yeah. guys just said is beautiful. This is the promise that Jesus took that sin, all of it, and we're all the same boat. So homosexuality, drug addiction, that's me okay it's no different whenever you break it down like that i'm a sinner in need of a savior so is the homosexual so is the person that is in some, so so is the straight person right we're all sinners and so that's the beauty of it jesus took that sin upon himself isaiah 53 second peter 2 this is the this is the beautiful part of it this is the promises that we've been talking about the regeneration the um all of it the eternal life the new age whenever jesus comes back all of this stuff to come part of it we see now part of it yet you know is still to be fulfilled but whenever all of these things come back 
this is that fulfillment of the gospel that we're leading into right now. So what exactly from both of your guys' perspectives, what is the gospel? How would you define the gospel just like that? I I would uh, say this. The gospel is the promise of the forgiveness of sins won for us by the suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And I would put the emphasis perhaps on the promise part because it's his suffering and death that wins forgiveness. That's the atoning work of Christ, his expiation, his propitiation, his act of reconciliation, all those theological words that the scriptures will use. Mm -hmm. But the gospel is that God, the Holy Spirit, sees to it that the news of that victory over sin, death, and the devil gets to me, the sinner. Mm. And so that's why the gospel, the oyangelion, which is the kind of the good news, this is the term of, of the guy who runs from the battlefield to announce the victory that happened mm. far away. And I think then th- this is how I like to think of it, that, uh, that every pastor should run into the pulpit sort of breathless, like the guy running the <laughs> marathon to announce Christ is, the tomb is empty. Christ is won. The victory is over. Your sins are forgiven mm. because that victory is now being announced to us as well. And so that's the specificity of what is the gospel. It's the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus and the benefit of it being delivered to us. That's right. It's like picture Mary running back from the temple to the 12. And they're like, hey, he's gone. He's gone. It's like, that's the picture. And that brings (laughs) into the whole new perspective. Blessed are the feet of those who bring good news, right? Yes. So Josh, I didn't mean to interrupt, brother, but what are your thoughts on the gospel? How would you define the gospel? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways we're pretty close, and, and that's yeah. good because we're talking about something that's very central to the faith. <laughs> um, the the thing that I, that makes me wonder, and this is where I get back into the whole idea of, of law and gospel distinction with this, is mm-hmm. is that you know the context of a gospel in the first century was was really understood to be this thing that would happen when you had the person coming into the streets that basically is saying this victory has happened, either you know, our king or emperor or this general is still in charge, or you have a new one and, and here's the deal, right? And that includes information about who that person that's victorious is, what their victory was, and then what they expected from you uh, in return, as well as, you know, like you can expect peace is a lot of times what they would say, right? So, you know, you're now, you're now are, are going to expect peace because of this great victory of Caesar, whoever. And, and so that was kind of the expectation that they had. And I, I think... I have I have a hard time separating out the gospel as just the promises when I look at things like Paul saying that that his gospel includes the fact that God that Christ will judge, right? And so I look at that and I go, okay, like yes, there are these promises. Yes, there's all of this stuff. Yes, he conquered sin, death, and the devil. You know, like these these are parts of the good news, and that's the part that we see. But you also have this announcement that Jesus is King. And that, that's both good news for everybody because there's a possibility of being allegiance to this new king. But mm-hmm. it's also not really good news if you are wanting to continue in a rebellion against that king. Uh, and, and that's where I, I kind of just I'm not sure what to do with that, because when I look at something like like the law and the gospel distinction, the idea of, of holding them as different things, but maybe not separate. I like that because the separation thing, I think, maybe breaks down what we actually see a Evangelion was in the first century. Whereas at least if we have the distinction, we can still hold them together. Maybe that can kind of fit. Does that make sense? I, I would. So I, I, two things I want to say, yeah. because, um, so first I want to read or just give you Luther's explanation of the second article, the creed in the small catechism, which I so okay. profound and you're going to love this. So second article, I believe in Jesus Christ is only son, our Lord conceived by the Holy spirit. So it's second article. What does this mean? I believe that Jesus Christ, true God begotten of the father before all worlds, and also true man born of the Virgin Mary is my Lord mm-hmm. who has redeemed me a lost and condemned creature purchased and won me from all sins from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold and silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death mm-hmm. in order that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and mm-hmm. serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence and blessedness, even as he has risen from the dead and lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. Mm. Can you? Yeah. Is that not a, a, a just a perfect summary of exactly what? I mean, I think I yeah. don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean that. So, um, part of my context for this is is you know I, I've been running a podcast now that's focused on trying to kind of flesh out the gospel more than we often see it. 
these days in church. And that summary is a lot more, I think, what we actually see in Scripture than the way that we often talk about it in, in church today. And so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot there I can definitely resonate with for sure. So here's the here's the thing, though, to the question about the distinction between law and yeah, gospel. Yeah. And that is that, so to know that the law and, the, and gospel, those words and those phrases have broad and narrow senses and different ways that they're used in the scripture. So, for example, Paul can say the righteousness of God apart from the law preached in the law. So, so their law in the broad sense means the Old Testament, basically. I mean, the works of Moses. And law in the narrow sense means the law as opposed to the gospel. Same thing is true with the gospel. So you can have gospel in the broad sense, which is the any announcement of any work of God mm-hmm. and word of God. Mm-hmm. And yet the gospel in the and that would include the law and the gospel in the narrow sense. Hmm. But the gospel in the narrow sense. So this is the question of when it comes down to justification. Yeah. And Paul and all the apostles, Jesus himself and the prophets as well, are making this distinction of how salvation comes to us. They want to include some things and exclude others. Hmm. And so this distinction between law and gospel is the tool to make sure that what's included is right and excluded is right, basically so that works are excluded. Right. So the, the great pains that the scriptures take to exclude our works and are therefore boasting from the work of justification or even the declaration of salvation, that's why the law-gospel distinction comes in very handy. So I can say, hey, look, when I live before my neighbor, it's I'm doing it because Jesus is Lord, and he's given me his word on how to do it and how to love and live and serve. Right. But when I come to stand before the Lord in judgment, what prevails there? And that's, that's where the law-gospel distinction is particularly helpful because it helps us, um, like Paul does, you know, where it says, to the one who... Uh, to to the one who does not work but believes on the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted as righteousness. So the so it's where that it's where that clear, clean distinction is needed on how in fact am I saved? That's why the law gospel distinction is so important. Amen. I want to touch on one more thing, if you got just a second, Doctor. Yeah, that's Wolf Sure. Uh, Speaking about the law and gospel distinction, another aspect of that is somebody who gets, and because I dealt with this, and so I just want to talk to, just ask you, for anyone else listening that struggled with this like I did, faith being a work, Mm -hmm. right? How Mm -hmm. do Lutherans see that? Is faith something categorically different, as Paul seems to make it out? Like you just quoted in that verse, and that's the verse that somebody led me to, to show me that, that no faith isn't a work, because Paul can contrast faith and works right there in the text right and specifically says faith is not a work so how do you view faith is it a work or is it something different right no it's not absolutely not a work it has it must be faith is the anti-work yeah but and the reason why faith is the anti-work is because the promise is the anti-command yeah so if i give you a command which says i don't know pat your head five times mm-hmm. you don't say i believe you Right. Because I didn't give you something to believe. I gave you something to do. Yeah. But if I say, um, I, I don't know what is a good price. It's going to snow tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't pat your head five times. I mean, I didn't I didn't give you something to do. I gave you something to believe. Mm-hmm. And so it is the it is the trustworthiness of God that is in question here, not the trustworthiness of man or the goodness of man right. or it's the goodness of God. So when I believe the Lord who says your sins are forgiven. I, there's nothing to do. I mean, I can love my neighbor, but that's because the Lord who forgives my sins prom- commanded me to love my neighbor. Right. But the but the the gospel comes as that pure promise. And as, as we're talking law versus gospel, it comes as that pure promise so that I believe that the Lord cannot lie and he has told the truth to me. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So So that's the confidence that we have. It's not confidence in ourselves or our obedience or our decision or our, our whatever. It's mm-hmm. confidence in God who was, was crucified, dead, raised, ascended into heaven, sent the Holy Spirit to preach that promise to us. So that's why, so that's what faith is. I mean, faith has so little to do. Did we talk, did I tell you the story about the two guys on the, on the uh, snowmobiles last time? Mm. Uh, I don't think so. If so, okay. you did, it was whenever I cut out. So, so think of, think of it this way. If, um, if you, if we come to a frozen river Mm-hmm. This this illustration worked in Colorado. Everyone down here doesn't have any idea. What it's like. <laughs> I'm in Colorado, like, so it'll work. That? 
they're like rivers freeze so um if you come to a frozen river there's a guy who has great faith in the in the ice that he can cross it and another guy has very weak faith in the ice so the guy with weak faith shimmies across on his belly afraid the whole time mm-hmm. and the guy with great faith charges across in a snowmobile they both make it across not because of their faith but because the ice is thick when they come back mm-hmm. next week and they have the same faith and one guy shimmies across on his belly, the other guy goes in the snowmobile, both crash into the river because the ice is paper thin. The, th- the point is not our faith at all. The point is the uh, faith is faith always, always is dependent on the object. Mm-hmm. If I have great faith in some idol and I will be condemned because the idol can't save. Right, yeah. But our faith, it's our faith in Christ and his promise that our sins are forgiven, that his de- His death was for us. That's what that's what saves. Oh, right. God be praised for that. <laughs> Amen. And, and just to add to that, not to take away anything, but just to add to, yes, Jesus is the object of our faith. But I want to address because something that American Christianity has really nailed into my head that I just absolutely despise. Okay. And I just, I'm venting here for a second, but you'll see what I'm talking about here in just a second. <laughs> Whenever we say believe in Jesus, we don't mean acknowledge Jesus' existence. That's not what we're trying to say. Whenever we say, mm. I believe in Jesus, that does not mean I acknowledge Jesus' existence like I believe in the Easter Bunny or don't believe in the Easter Bunny. That means I trust him. I am placing my allegiance in Christ, and I believe he said, or I believe he's going to do what he said. That's what to believe in Jesus means from that perspective. And and I just hear that so often just talking to people and especially the younger generation. Well, I don't know if I believe in God or not. Well, what do you mean by that? Do you believe in God like 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 the Easter Bunny or how does that work? Exactly? And 99% of the time, yeah, I acknowledge his existence. And so just to speak on that just for like a second, I, I think that's a mistake that I see a lot of people make. And if I correct that just by that, dude, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> So well, anyway. I'm not, I, I, I can pile on to that. Even yeah. the demons believe in shutter. Right. So exactly. clearly more than just belief in existence is, is involved here. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where I, I, I wonder, as we see a lot, there's a lot of, I, I think, even debate now about what, what pistis means in different contexts in scripture. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, do we say that it's faith? Do we say that it's faithfulness? Do we say that it's allegiance or trust? Um, and that, and that gets pretty interesting because when you're talking about faith, you can be talking about belief and loyalty, but maybe not necessarily in a way that involves doing anything. And so that, that tends to be the kind of the classical Reformation way of looking at it. But then you have people like, you know, um, I mean, you have people looking at it and basically saying, like, no, if it means faithfulness, that involves doing things. If it means allegiance, that can mean both. Like, how? so I, I guess maybe looking at the different kind of smatterings we have in in um, modern scholarship, I'm assuming, uh, Pastor Brian, you're going to land more on probably that sense of, you know, faith is belief and, and trust in Christ, but not necessarily faithfulness in most of the passages we're talking about, not necessarily allegiance in most of the passages we're talking about. Is that correct? Yes. So, yes. Um, and But I think the key thing then would be just that connection between faith and the promise, mm-hmm. so that faith is what you do with a promise. So if I walk into a room and you and I don't say anything, and you said, "Yeah, I believe you." <laughs> I said, "Well, I didn't. Well, that's nice, but I didn't give you anything to believe." So it's mm. so faith is an essentially, oh, I don't know if you, how how did you say it a fancy way? It's centered on the logos. I mean, there has to be a word that's there. So when we trust the Lord because He is trustworthy, we know mm. He's trust. That, that that means He keeps His promises. Right. So it's uh, so I would center it on the word, I think. So so then when so that then we would have a derived sort of faithfulness that would come from that. But it's I think the key thing is going to be the word. Yeah. Yeah, I Thank agree. You. And I think, you know, whenever like you guys were talking about earlier, whenever people try to change that word, I, I have to ask, are you do you really believe what the Bible says? And I would have to say, no, if you're bringing in and trying to change things about homosexuality and just you know i just say that because we talked about it earlier but if you're trying to change what the bible clearly says i have to ask do you really believe it and Mm -hmm. and i mean that's that's what it boils down to me anyway is that god spoke and it and it is as simple as this god spoke do i believe it and if that answer is yes praise be to god if that answer is no i have to ask you why 
because everything from the crucifixion to the 300 plus prophecies that we find in the Old Testament law and the prophets and the writings, all of that came true. All of it. Jesus mm-hmm. rose from the grave. And guess what? Because half of it's now fulfilled, you can best believe the other half will be too. He's coming back. And whenever he does, he's coming back as Lord, Savior, King to gain, to, to take what's his and mm. to judge the rest. And so come join us, <laughs> you know, join <laughs> us. But, but Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller, I know you've got. Uh, another engagement to do. I just want to thank you so much for coming back on to talk, you know, Lutheran distinctions on gospel, on law. You cleared up a lot of things for me. I'm pretty sure you cleared up a lot of things for Joshua, but I'll let you speak on that, bro. Um, what do you think, man? What What's your closing comments on this conversation as a whole? Is that aimed at me? Or yeah, sure. Ryan? Go, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I, I think it's very helpful. I mean, because to be honest, I... I did not know a lot about this particular aspect of Lutheran theology before this conversation. So I was kind of cramming on like, okay, what are the basics and what does this mean? And how do I see the intersection of these different things that people are debating, whether it's new perspective on Paul or what is the law, what is the gospel, like all of these things. So it's helpful to to really kind of, I think, put that in context. Uh, And, you know, again, I just appreciate, uh, I think, the the clarity and and the passion that that you uh, bring with you, Pastor Ryan. Thank you. Oh, you guys! It's really my pleasure, and I appreciate you guys too. You're having your, you guys are out in in conversations that I'm not in, and exploring things that I'm not exploring, and so I appreciate that. And I I like seeing how they, you know, where our kind of well, I should say my uh, kind of Lutheran confession, where it it's complementary and helpful, or where it's mm-hmm. contrary, um, where we've been in the arguments and where we haven't. So I pr- I really appreciate this too. It's great. It's great fun for me. So ha- thank you guys for. I look forward to doing it again. I hope I hope we get another chance to. Absolutely, we for sure will. So just in case people don't know, maybe they missed the first episode. Pastor Brian, where can people find you if they want to hear more of you? They should come to Saint Paul Lutheran Church in Austin, Texas. Go. How about that? <laughs> uh, and then if you if you're not close by uh, Austin, uh, Wolfmuller.co is the website where most of the stuff ends up. So you can find YouTube podcast and um, sign up for a free weekly newsletter and a bunch of books you can download for free. We I, I was just looking at this this week. Luther uh, wrote a book, Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved in 1526. Ah. You can download that for free on the website, nice. uh, a bunch of stuff like that. So. Uh, yeah, that's 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 probably the best spot. And you can contact me there as well. So right on. And Joshua Sharma, where can people find you? You mentioned you had a podcast. Where is that bad yeah. boy? Uh, so my podcast is called Tending Our Nets, uh, and it's just focused on helping us to really um, take a look at the gospel in, in deeper ways um, than we often talk about in church, whether we're talking about the big picture story that we see in scripture and how we fit into it, whether we're talking about, um, you know, essentially the what we are created for and what our destiny is and how we fit into that, whether we're talking about, you know, all of these kind of different first century and, and, and uh, old Testament aspects of what we understand when we say gospel. So um, yeah, that's how you can find me. Amen. So check out that. And of course you can find all CSG stuff on our website, feed.completecenters.com. We got over 70 episodes there between there and YouTube. So make sure y'all check out that, check out the first discussion. Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller had with us on CSG about has American Christianity failed? Great book. I finished it by the way. Great book. Fantastic. Mm. Um, but thank you guys again so much for doing this. I am Tyler Fowler, Pastor Brian Wolf Mueller, Joshua Sherman. Thank you guys so much. Good night. God bless. And we're out. See ya.